like for you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And as we come to Romans chapter 1 verse 18 this morning, I want to remind you that back in verses 16 and 17, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And we learned that Paul was telling us that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that there is a righteousness available from God for those of us who don't have it. And he will give us his righteousness by faith if we will put our trust in him. Which is a good thing because in verse 18 Paul tells us there's something else about God's character that we need to know. And that something else is the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You know, we need to proclaim far and near and all over town and all around the world that God is love. We need people to know that God loves them, that he has provided salvation for them in Jesus Christ. But if that's all we ever say, we have misrepresented God. Because God is not only a God of love, but he is a God of perfect character. And along with his infinite love, and his infinite grace, and his infinite mercy, and his infinite kindness, he is also a God of justice, and of judgment, and of righteousness, and holiness. And because of that, he is a God of wrath, and a God of judgment. And Paul says we need to reckon with this reality. That the good news that the gospel offers to us a gift of righteousness by faith is good news because God is also a just God. And when we consider the condition of human beings, his wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of the truth. Now when we begin to consider that, one of the things that we want to understand is the way Paul in his argument seeks to explain the condition of man. And when I say argument, I don't mean he's fighting with anyone, but this is his his logical explanation of the condition of the human heart apart from the grace of God. And he begins with the broad and the general, and he begins to move toward the more specific and finally to, to the very focused issue of the Jew. In other words, he starts with pagan people, and he describes their condition. And then he starts with people who have some semblance of moral regulation or ethical principles or values. And then he moves toward the Jew who has been blessed with special revelation. Let me explain what I mean by that and explain the term pagan as I'm using it in this sense. Uh, many people use pagans as a term to describe anyone who is outside of Jesus Christ. That's not necessarily what the Bible is referring to here as uh, people who are outside of God. Also, today, there's a rather specific definition of the term pagan. It means 
that group of religious people who have returned to Wicca and witchcraft and the worship of the earth goddess and nature and who have specifically turned away from Christianity and have returned to the worship of, of earth and the elements and those things that are involved in, in Wicca and witchcraft. They call themselves pagans, and they say that they are pagan in their religion. I'm not talking about that. As Paul begins to describe for us the human beings in chapter 1, verse 18 and following, he is talking about people who are outside of Jesus Christ and also outside of the specific revelation of the Scripture, and for the most part, outside of any organized system of, of law or justice or moral or ethical code. He's talking about people who have run from God and run a long way. And they are far from God. And he describes their condition. The condition of every human being anywhere on the planet that is in that category. And then in chapter 2, he begins to narrow his focus. He says, okay, I've talked to you about the, the, the condition of the human heart way apart from God. But what about people who have a good moral code? What about people who have ethical standards? We might even describe our own culture that way. In the United States, we have not completely abandoned morality. We've just redefined it according to our own perception. Most people would say that they have a moral code. They would say that they have ethical values. But if you ask them to describe the foundation upon which they base those ethics, they will say, well, I, I do what's right in my own eyes. I try to evaluate situations and make the best judgment I can within reason. And they are a law unto themselves. People often don't recognize that. They're basically saying, I'm the final authority, I'm the rule, but I have an ethical system. In certain cases, you shouldn't lie. In other cases, well, bending the truth might be acceptable. In certain cases, this would be wrong, but, but it would, might be right over here. Um, and so they kind of redefine their morality, but they have an ethical standard. Paul says, what about those people? How do they measure up in this whole business of standing up before God? And then finally he says, what about the Jew? Now, the Jewish person stands out different from all other humanity. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying this morning. I'm not getting involved in the politics of the Middle East right now. That's not, not even my reference. But Jewish people have a unique place in, in human history. Because God came to a man named Abraham and told him to go to a place that he would show him. And in due season, he came to one of the offspring by the name of Moses and revealed ten laws to Moses that we call the Ten Commandments. And in addition to those ten laws, he revealed five whole books of information about God's character. And so the Jew has a unique place in human history because God has given to the Jewish people special revelation. He has defined who he is. He has explained his nature. He has given them a moral covenant, an ethical code called the Ten Commandments. 
and he has given to the Jews specific and particular information about the nature of God. And Paul deals with that in the last part of chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3. So we see that he begins very broadly, people way away from any biblical revelation, and moves toward the center of people who have had special revelation from God. And in the process, he says, all of us are under the condemnation of the wrath of God apart from Jesus Christ. Because whether we've never heard of the Ten Commandments or whether they were given to us by divine revelation, we are all in the same boat of running and rebelling from God. Having said that, we begin to get into chapter 1 and we see what that looks like for human beings totally apart from any revelation of God. Now there's one of the things that we need to connect with as we start here, and that is I want you to look at a few highlighted verses. Look at verse 24 with me for a moment. Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their heart to impurity. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. We find all through this chapter, Paul making the statement, people did this, and so God did this. People ran away from God, and God gave them over to the next thing. And as we look at that progression, we find that basically what is being said here is the further people run, the farther God will let them go. The further they move away from him, the further he's willing to let them run. In one sense of the word, this brings immediate judgment. Because sin has its own consequence. You know, you can only go so far in sin before it begins to bite you. You know, if you choose alcohol as a means of escape, eventually you will be trapped. You're not going to escape after a period of time. You're going to be caught. There is a natural consequence to running to alcohol as a means of getting numbing yourself and getting away from the pressures of life. You become in bondage to it. Sin has its own consequence, and you can just about pick any sin and run it to ground, and eventually you're going to be in trouble. So in one sense of the word, there's a natural judgment that comes from people who insist on a path of rebellion. But in another sense, we find in other passages of Scripture that this actually also reveals the mercy of God, because God's first choice in bringing men and women to himself is to be good to them. But when they insist on going their own way, and they eventually run into a wall and find that they've been trapped in their own rebellion, it's kind of a wake-up call, and that's when people sometimes say, hey, I need God. That's not a bad place to be. You may have been in an awful lot of trouble to land there, but to say, I need God, is a good statement to make. And so in some cases, in some ways, it may be actually his mercy. But ultimately, all of this rebellion ends in the wrath of God. And one of the things that is not very popular today, but we have to deal with as as Christians, 
we have to be aware of. It should motivate our evangelism. It motivated Jesus Christ. And that is the fact that one day, if we persist in going our own direction, we're eventually going to die. And the scripture says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. And once we die, we're going to face a judgment, and we're going to stand before a holy God and give an account for our lives. And we're going to fall short. We're not going to measure up. And the scripture says that the consequence of standing before a holy God in our sin, without a Savior and without salvation, is that we're going to be found guilty. We have fallen short of the mark. The word sin, hamartia in Greek, literally means to miss the mark. They would use it if an archer drew his bow and pointed his arrow at the bullseye and let the arrow fly. If it fell short of the bullseye, they would call that hamartia. It missed the mark. And we call it sin. That's the word that's translated sin in the New Testament. And God is the mark. God is the bullseye. His character, his nature, his moral perfection. And people who miss that mark stand condemned. And it's a tragic thing, the scripture says, to fall into the hands of an angry God. When you have blown by the opportunities of grace and redemption and, and, and the opportunity to come to know forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and you come to the end and you have no excuse. And the Bible says the consequence of that is hell. And I've been in among people and construction crews and fire departments and rescue squads and various and sundry places where I have gotten to know folk and they get to talk and they say, well, you know, I don't really mind going to hell because that's where all my friends are going to be. That's where my golf buddies are going to be. That's where my drinking buddies are going to be. You know, I may as well go. You know, why, why I would be out of place if I missed all my buddies. The only problem is they have a misconception. They're not going to be there with anybody else. They're going to be there all by themselves. I don't mean they're going to be the only ones there. They're just not going to see anyone else forever. They're going to be alone. They're going to be alone with their memories of all the things they should have done but never did. Of all the things they didn't do but should have done of all the opportunities that they had to do it right, but they did it wrong. The worm, the scripture says, the conscience never dies in hell. It reminds you forever and ever and ever of all the things you ought to have done or not to have done that you didn't do or did do contrary to God's law. And in addition to that, there is conscious punishment and torment. For that reason, I never use the word hell lightly or flippantly or in slang or careless language. I don't want anybody to go to hell. I don't want my worst enemy to go to hell. I don't know who my worst enemy is right now, but if I had one, I don't want him to be there. It is a horrible place that lasts forever. There's no way out. It is eternal. It is judgment, punishment, and memory forever. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of the truth. 
Well, how can God hold people responsible if they've never heard? Paul now, let's go back to Romans 1. Paul is talking about people who have not had the benefit of special revelation. They haven't had the benefit of the Bible. They haven't had the benefit of knowing the Ten Commandments or hearing the Gospel. How can God hold them responsible? When they stand before judgment, can't they say, God, I never knew. I mean, if I had heard that message, surely I would have responded, but I never knew it. I never knew you were there. I didn't even know to cry out to you. Ah, but Paul says that's not the case. If you look in verse 19, he says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. In other words, Paul is telling us that according to the Scripture, human beings knew that God was there. They knew He existed. His the, nature speaks to us of God. The things that have been made speak to us of His invisible attributes. What are His attributes? Theologians speak of moral and non-moral attributes. Non-moral attributes are like he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's all-present. His moral attributes are things like he is good, he is righteous, he is holy, he is just, he is loving, he is kind. The Bible says that nature itself speaks to us of the invisible attributes of God. They tell us about His divine nature. They tell us about His eternal being. They have been clearly seen. And people who view this suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They refuse to see. I want to read you an excerpt, if I can find what I did with it. I want to read you an excerpt from Dr. Guyton's book on medical physiology. I can't find mine. I have the 8th edition, and it's in a box in my basement somewhere where it's been for about three years. But I printed off a page of the first chapter from the internet this morning of the 11th edition. And I want to read you some of the things that he says. He is comparing animal cell life with precellular forms of life. And this is what he says. Many of us think of the cell as the lowest level of life. However, the cell is a very complicated organism that required many hundreds of millions of years to develop after the earliest forms of life, an organism similar to the present-day virus, appeared on the earth. Now, in the 8th edition, and I really wish I could have found this because I'd love to have read you what has been omitted from this edition. After making this statement about the complexity of the cell, he says something to this effect. He says the cell is so complex and so specific and so detailed in its functioning 
that one is absolutely amazed to think that such a thing could ever have evolved by chance. It's not in the 11th edition. I suppose someone thought it didn't belong. But Dr. Guyton, who is an evolutionary biologist writing on medical human physiology, recognized that what he was looking at defied the ability of a human being to explain on the basis of chance. But having gone on from there, from his evolutionary perspective, he says this in a medical textbook. As life evolved, other chemicals besides nucleic acid and simple proteins became integral parts of the organism. And specialized functions began to develop in different parts of the virus. A membrane formed around the virus, and inside the membrane, a fluid matrix appeared. Specialized chemicals then developed inside the fluid to perform special functions. Many protein enzymes appeared that were capable of catalyzing chemical reactions and therefore determining the organism's activity. In still later stages of life, particularly in the rickettsial and bacterial stages, organelles developed inside the organism, representing physical structures of chemical aggregates that perform functions in a more efficient manner than can be achieved by dispersed chemicals throughout the fluid matrix. Finally, in the nucleated cell, still more complex organelles developed, the most important of which is the nucleus itself, the nucleus distinguishes this type of cell from all lower forms of life. The nucleus provides a control center for all cellular activities. Now, up until this sentence, I want to tell you, everything I've read to you is pure fantasy. It is, it is imagination. It is fiction. He wasn't there. He didn't see this special membrane form around the virus? No one saw that. We don't even know that that happened. That's not science. This is pure conjecture. Conjecture on the basis of what? Somehow I've got to get to a cell without God. How can I do that? I can add in hundreds of millions of years and hope that these changes I have imagined really took place. But here's what is not fiction and how he ends the paragraph. The nucleus distinguishes this type of cell from all lower forms of life. The nucleus provides a control center for all cellular activities. And it provides for exact reproduction of new cells generation after generation. Each new cell having the same structure as its progenitor. If that's not an anti-evolutionary statement, I've never heard one. It says very plainly that every cell reproduces itself identically. The only time it doesn't is when it goes haywire like cancer. And it's never good. It doesn't evolve upward. It falls apart if it goes bad. Guyton recognized in his earlier books, and somehow took it out of the rest, 
that when he looked at the human cell, he was amazed at its complexity and could hardly believe that it could have just happened. Well, of course not, because it defies imagination. My friends, listen. The Scripture tells us that the truth about God is known within them because God has made it evident to them. All around the world, you go to any race, you go to any culture, you go to any country, you go to any tribe, all around the world, people are innately religious. Why? Because they know there's a God, and they know they have some kind of responsibility to Him, and they're going to have to answer to Him, and they have created a religion that gives them a means of connecting with the God that they innately believe exists. To believe in God is normal and natural because He has put that in the heart of every man. To deny Him is to work at it. To be an atheist requires effort. You have to look at this incredibly complex universe and throw away the only logical explanation for its existence and come up with something else that's impossible for a sane person to believe. I don't think Albert Einstein believed in the God of the Scriptures as we know him, but he was a theist. He believed that God was there. He believed in intelligent design. Because one of the most brilliant minds of the last century could not look at the universe in all of its complexity and simply write it off as an accident. Anyone who has eyes to see can see that this world has been made at least by intelligent design, and that there is something even benevolent and good about it, in spite of all the evil that we see. And in the midst of that, the Scripture tells us that God has put in the heart of every human being the awareness of His existence. Furthermore, people don't just know there's a God there, they know He's a moral God. They know he has a sense of judgment and righteousness, and they're going to have to answer to him. The human conscience has been damaged by sin. It gets affected. People have guilty consciences when they shouldn't have because of things they've been told. People don't have guilty consciences when they should have because of things they've convinced themselves of. So the conscience is not a perfect instrument, but it exists in every human being. And it exists as a part of the image of God. It speaks to us of moral obligation. It tells us when we have gone off or on the path. And it defines for us a sense that one day we're going to have to give an answer. How do I know that? Because once again, in verse 32, the scripture says... Although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. How do people know there is a God, and how do they know that He is a moral God, and how do they know that He's going to require of them an answer for their lives? Because God tells us He has revealed it 
to every human heart. Those who deny it do so contrary to all evidence and the speaking of their own conscience. Every human being on the planet knows that God is there. They have a sense of moral compass. They have a sense of right and wrong. And they have a sense of judgment. And I know that because God says, I have made it known to them. And no matter what they tell you or how they argue, when they go to bed at night and turn the music off, by the way, I think that's why some people run around with earbuds in their ear all the time and fall asleep to TV or something. I'm not trying to make a universal judgment here. I'm just making an observation. I think one of the reasons why people want their lives constantly filled with noise is because they can't stand their thoughts when it gets quiet. Because when it's all said and done and the day is over and the night is dark and the house is quiet and the mind is restless, there's a sense inside of God and of judgment and of having to give an answer. And people are running, and they don't want to hear it. What does Paul say is true of human beings who have run from God? Well, when they first turn away from him, he gives them over to idolatry. That idolatry turns into sensuality. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. There's idolatry. And then the next thing is, then God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another men with men, committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, to do things that are not proper, being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Paul is describing for us a level of depravity that just goes to the bottom dregs of the human, human heart and exposes us for what we are apart from Jesus Christ. And according to the scripture, when we stand before God, every human being, we will not be able to say, I never knew, I never understand, I never knew there was a God, I never had a sense of, of moral responsibility. Because God himself has not only made it known, but in verse 20, the last half he says, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Friends, one of the reasons we need to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people is because while they all have a sense of God and a sense of, of judgment, they do need to hear the message of God's love and salvation. They need to hear the gospel that can save their souls and change them from 
this quagmire of, of, of moral cesspool living to something that is honoring and glorifying to him and come home to him. They need to hear that message because they are without excuse. And God will not give them a pass at the bar of judgment just because they didn't hear. Because they have information. And the Bible says every human being, in spite of it, chooses rebellion as their path. What are some of the lessons that we can learn from chapter 1? Well, first of all, nature alone is an ample testimony to the nature and character of God. You know, even in its altered condition, you can see the beauty of God through, through nature. You can see something of his character. The other day, I was sitting in my office in a goldfinch, uh, found a bunch of mosquitoes nicely trapped in a spider web right on my windowsill. And he perched there and was pecking away. And um, once uh, Hector tapped on the window and he flew away and he came back and he realized Hector couldn't get at him, so it didn't bother him anymore. And he just sat there and feasted on this uh, buffet that had been prepared for him by a spider during the night. And uh, just sat there, beautiful, beautiful little bird. Flowers are, are gorgeous. You know, do you ever think God could have made them all black and made insects all attracted to black? But he didn't. He, he gave them all this color so that we could enjoy them. And all the varieties, I, I think that was just an add-in. Because, you know, they could have all looked like lilies or something, but they don't. They, they, they have intricacy. Sunsets are marvelous. You can explain to me colors on the basis of atmosphere and dust and chemicals and all that kind of stuff, but you know what? That could have been ugly too. But God made it absolutely beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. I sat down on the lakefront one day a week or so ago and watched the sunrise over the lake, and I was just astounded at the beauty of it. And I watched uh, a duck couple, you know, waking up and doing their morning routine, and, and it just speaks to me of the character of God. Even though it's damaged, by sin. It's still beautiful in its own way. And one day God is going to restore it. It testifies to intelligent and ordered design. You can't look at the complexity you see and not be astounded, like Guyton in, in the 8th edition. I am amazed that such a thing could have possibly happened by chance. Well, so am I. Because it's just amazing. It's not possible that it was just an accident. It speaks to us of ordered design. And it speaks to us of God's care for everyone. You know, I know there's hungry people in the world today. I know there's famine. I know there's drought. But in the main, God causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust, and his sunshine, and he gives food, and he gives air to breathe. And even people who deny he's there, and those who angrily shake their fist at him, they're still sucking air. That's amazing. You know, only God is big enough to take that after 6,000 years. The rest of us would be shooting people by now. But God just lets them go on breathing and shaking their fist at him and saying, I hate you, I deny your existence. He still gives them life. He is a good God. He is a gracious God. 
He is patient and long-suffering. Another thing that we can take away from this chapter is when you share Jesus Christ, you can be sure that people are hearing on the inside what you're saying on the outside. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit promises to accompany your witness. When you share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and when you explain the moral requirements of God expressed in the Ten Commandments, people in their heart know it's truth. They can argue with you, they can deny it, they can run, they can slam the door in your face. They can go and do whatever they want to do and say you're a nut, a fool, and an idiot. But the Bible says that when the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit bears witness. And he convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And what is already innately inherent in the heart of every human being, the Holy Spirit takes and begins to work on. You can count on the fact that you have divine assistance when you're sharing Jesus Christ. Because God is already at work in their heart. And they cannot escape his voice. A third thing that we can take away from here is if Romans 1 is a reflection of the natural downward spiral of human depravity, then homosexuality is not the worst sin. You may have heard, I grew up listening to preachers, and if I'm not mistaken, I actually preached this myself a couple of times. If you live long enough, you get it right, I think. I used to hear when I was a child, and I heard in my first church that I was in, because the pastor preached it, I distinctly remember it, and I, and I know I've said it in the past. When a society or a culture comes to open acceptance of homosexuality, it has come to the bottom of the moral heap, and its end and its demise is certain. But you know what? Homosexuality is not at the end of the pile here. It's right in the middle. It's not the bottom of the heap. Now make no mistake, and, and I, I said this in the first service, and someone I think misunderstood what I was getting at. I'm going I'm to tell you in a few moments about being accepting. And someone misunderstood me to say that we accept homosexual behavior in the church by Christians. No, we do not. If you had any doubt that homosexuality is sin, Romans chapter 1 should remove that from your mind. It is clearly sin. It is contrary to God's law. People are not born genetic homosexuals. They become homosexuals by choice. By the way, that's not a new argument. I learned in first century Rome they blamed it on the stars and the arrangement of the planets. Even then, they were passing the buck. But the fact of the matter is, people choose homosexual behavior. I'm not going to argue with a person who says, I have tendencies and leanings in that direction. You know what? To have a tendency or a leaning or a bent towards something is not in and of itself sin. Let me be careful to make that clear. To have a, a leaning toward homosexuality is not sin any more than having a heterosexual drive when you're not married and having a desire for sexual expression is to have that present is not necessarily sin to act on it to take wrong behavior or to fantasize or engage in pornography that's a problem now you're taking action 
So I'm not even going to argue with whether or not some people have some inherent tendency. I don't know what happened in childhood or anywhere else or why a person feels the way they feel. But what I know is this, homosexuality is clearly contrary to the law of God. It is sin. There's no way to sugarcoat it. There's no way to make it a genetic problem. There's no way to to write it off and say that's just the way people are. It is not the way they are. They've chosen that path. That's a choice. But it's not the worst sin. And if this is a list of declining depravity, this occurs in the middle. Guess what comes after it? Well, look at it. Verse 29. Unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil. Do you know what greed causes in this world? It's behind many murders. It's behind many thefts. It's behind many laws that are made in the legislature. It is the driving force of big business operating on a bottom line mentality without regard to the welfare of the people that rely on it for a job or whom it serves in its products. Greed is one of the ugliest characteristics of human beings. And if this is a downward list, greed is worse than homosexual immorality. Greed is in the bottom of the barrel. In fact, if it were not for the laws of the land and and human government, and if it were not for a fear of punishment and police officers... Greed would so fill the human heart that we would walk down the street stepping around corpses and guts and blood and intestines and human body parts because we would be literally ripping each other apart in the streets to get the upper hand. Human beings apart from the rule of law and the grace of God are not pretty. And greed is an ugly demon that drives incredible behavior. But the list goes on. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Say, well, you can't accuse me of murder. But you see, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when he was going to the heart and root of issues, said, if you have anger toward your brother such that you say, I think you're an absolute fool, you're worthless. He said, you have already committed murder. No, you didn't put a knife in him or shoot him with a gun, but your own attitude betrays the fact that if you had the chance, you would just do away with him. You've already called him a worthless, no-good fool. And that's the root of murder. That's at the bottom line. So if the root is there, all that has to happen to let the sin evolve is remove the restraints, take away the law, put you in a position where you'll never be found out, and murder is the consequence. They're gossips. You know what um, onomatopoeia is? You know what an anonym is? (laughs) You know what a synonym is? Probably remember those. Well, onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like the thing it describes. Let me give you an example. Buzz, hiss, 
That's onomatopoeia. Dollop. Can't you just see the tablespoon of mayonnaise landing in the dish? Dollop. Well, in Greek, this word gossip is an onomatopoeia. I, I got fascinated by this, I guess you can tell. Listen to the Greek word for gossip. It really means whisperer. Can't you hear it? Boy, have I got some news for you. Gossips. Gossips attack and assassinate character. They destroy reputations. They take away a person's dignity without the benefit of defense or explanation. Paul says it's either on par with homosexuality or it's worse than it. Take your pick. Either this is a level cesspool and we're all swimming in the grime or it's an ordered list and gossips are near the bottom. Disobedient to parents. Really? There? Disobedient to parents? You mean that's at the bottom of the list? Yeah, it is. Unloving, unmerciful. Here's one that'll throw you. Untrustworthy. That literally means people who break their word and don't keep their contracts. Because that's what we are, apart from Jesus Christ. We don't keep our covenants. We're untrustworthy. Now, there, there's a whole minefield there of stuff to dig around in. I'm not going to go there. But Paul is describing the character of human beings apart from God. And we are a messy lot of people. Thank goodness. Thank God for the gospel. Now, you know, the truth about this list is, is that apart from Jesus Christ, and Paul's going to get here by the end of chapter 3, or the middle of chapter 3, he's going he's to shut us all up in this box. Without Jesus, we're all in this same cesspool. We're swimming in the sewer together. I want to tell you a story. I'm going to close with this, but I want to tell you a couple of stories. I was at council, and I heard a preacher there from New Jersey bring a message. And he told a couple of illustrations that were true stories from his own experience, and, and they, were, they were shocking. He started out his sermon that night by saying this, and he told us that he had also started a sermon in another church where he was the guest pastor with the same statement. This was the question he asked. Where in this town could a liberal Democrat who believes in a woman's right to abortion and supports the gay agenda, 
and is fully embraced in the liberal program, where could they go to church and feel welcomed and received and made to feel at home and, and hear the gospel? And he said he started his message out in another church one day with that question, and one of the elders stood up and said, Not in this church, not ever. And he said, I didn't know what to do. He said, here I have just started my message and I don't know what to say. He just took, how do you respond? And he said, while he was groping for something to say, something, someone across the room stood up and said, yes, that's true. We would much rather they go to hell. Wow. Then he told this story. He said, we sent out thousands of invitations to our community before Easter Sunday, inviting the community to come to our church for Resurrection Sunday. And he said, I had just finished my morning jog. I was at home on Saturday morning. My phone rang. I answered the phone, and a woman's voice said, is Pastor so-and-so available? And he said, yes, I'm a pastor. And she said, well, she said, I have a question for you. She said, I got your postcard in the mail inviting us to service. And she said, I am in a committed relationship with another woman, and we have been living together for three years. And we would like to know if we can come to your church for Easter Sunday. And at that point, he stopped and he said, what do you think we responded? How would you respond? He said, I told her what you would have told her. Of course you can. But, he said, then I said to her, of course you can. But that's not really the question you wanted to ask me. And she said, well, yes it is. He said, no, I think you had another question in your mind. And she said, well, if you think I had another question, why don't you tell me what it is? He said, I think this is your question, really. What you really want to know is, can you come, not only Easter Sunday, but can you come for the next 12 weeks, you and your partner, and be welcomed and loved and accepted and received in our congregation with open arms? That's what you really want to know. And he said, she paused, and she said, yes, I guess it is. And he said, the answer to that question is also yes. Now I have a question for you. Are we that kind of church? How many liberal Democrats would feel comfortable worshiping Jesus Christ in this congregation? Just a question. There are a few, well, they may not all be liberal, but there's a few Democrats, but they mostly keep quiet. How many lesbian couples, how many gay men, 
would feel loved and accepted and welcomed in this congregation. How many people from some weird subculture with piercings through their eyebrows and their lips and their nose and their ears and other body parts I won't mention and chains connecting them all and scarification to decorate their skin would feel comfortable and welcome and loved in this congregation. Now here's where I can be misunderstood. I'm not saying that certain lifestyles are acceptable in terms of their moral condition. But friends, it is not your job nor mine to convict people of sin. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it is not our job to condemn. That is God's job. He is the judge. And right now, we live in a period of time where he is extending his love to every human being. Come to my son. Come to Jesus. Be forgiven. Come home to me. I love you. And every one of us were swimming in the same cesspool. Maybe we didn't look like, I won't carry that analogy too far. Maybe we didn't look the same, but we were still in the same soup. We all were sinners. Such were some of you. We have all come to Jesus by grace. And if we don't love people, how will they ever know that God loves them? They will know that God is there. They will know that he is just. But how will they know his love if we don't love them? If we don't welcome them? If we don't receive them? You see, I can receive a homosexual couple. I can embrace a gay man as a human being and not condone his behavior, but invite him to come discover Jesus. And God will deal with his problems. It's not my problem. God will deal with his problems. God will deal with people who need conviction. I don't know if you're paying attention to what's happening in the world, but biblical morality is virtually passe. Forget about the gay agenda. We can talk about traditional marriage and family values and, and reserving sexuality or sexual expression for the marital union. We, for, the world has no concept. If we don't love people who don't act like Christians, we're not ever going to win anybody to Jesus. It's God's responsibility to convict of sin. It's my responsibility to share Jesus Christ. And I want you to know this morning, my friends, 
No one should ever, ever be offended in this church by anything other than the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. If they're offended with Jesus, who is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to some people, so be it. I'm not going to water down the gospel. I'm not going to backpedal the truth. I'm going to present the, the claims of Christ clearly, and so should you. But they should never be offended because I don't agree with their politics. They should never be offended because I have prejudged their lifestyle. They should never be offended because I don't have room here in this church. We're too holy to get dirty. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Think about that. People in the worst way of life ran to Jesus. They run from us. Think about it. What's wrong? He loved them. Didn't condone them. Didn't sugarcoat it. Didn't excuse them. But he loved them. And he offered them forgiveness. And we need to be a people that love unconditionally. We need to have our doors open. We need to learn to embrace unbelievers. You know why non-Christians don't act like Christians? Because they're non-Christians. Of course they don't. Don't expect anything different. Don't, don't go out there and say, don't you know you shouldn't live like that? No. They don't, in all of its depth. They don't get it. Just go out there and tell them about Jesus. And invite them to join us. That they can come to know him. God will change them. And make them happy about it. You know, that's a good thing. You know, God, when a person surrenders to Jesus Christ, they love it. They love it. They don't, you don't give up. Those of you that know the Lord, you, you know, you didn't give up anything. You gained everything. It's wonderful. When God does that work, it's wonderful. Give them a chance. Give them a chance. Don't make them feel like they don't belong. When this is a place where sinners have been redeemed. Father, open our eyes and our hearts this morning understand the tragic condition of people around us. It, it is sad to know that they oppose themselves. They, they are running in ways that lead to destruction. They don't even understand it. God, give us hearts of love, spirit of grace, kindness. Understand, Lord, the need that people have for Jesus and not to get in the way of your redemption and your love by acting like we're God instead of acting like we're ambassadors who bring His love. 
And Father, teach us to be even patient with one another. It takes a while to get sanctified. <laughs> if I read my Bible right, it's not going to be done till we see you face to face. Teach us even how to be patient with each other in the body. To be kind and long-suffering and gracious. To pray for one another and encourage each other. Thank you so much for your grace that makes salvation possible. In the blessed name of Jesus I pray. Amen.